Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we get to talk to Jenny Lefcourt, a great entrepreneur turned a venture capitalist, and she has quite a story. She founded the WeddingChannel.com and then Bella Pictures, both of which were eventually bought, and then and she started investing and eventually joined Freestyle VC, and she's currently invested in a number of companies, including BetterUp, Mestio, Commercial Real Estate Exchange, and Giftbit. So I'm really excited that Jenny's here today and hear more how she thinks and what she's excited about now. So it's Jenny, thanks for coming on our show today. My pleasure. I do have to add, because my first investment and one yeah. of my favorites is in a company called Narvar. So I'm going to add that to your list. <laughs> Narvar. Okay. Well, you have to, well, why is that? Why is it one of your favorites? Well, first of all, there's something to to it being your first yes. investment. Yeah. You know, it's the first investment I made while being at Freestyle. And because um, I just love the founder and CEO so and the team he's built and uh, what the product does. It's, the, it's basically he they own the post-purchase experience for all these e-commerce companies. So it used to be that um, co- companies put all their energy, their money, their branding into the most wonderful sort of they've called the customer journey um, uh, on their website. But the, as soon as you bought, you suddenly were treated kind of like crap. Like, here's your UPS number. <laughs> and if, as a customer, you had to go take that UPS number, go to UPS.com and try to figure out when the hell your package was coming. And returns were still done like it was 1999. And so um, the CEO of Nyarbar basically, because he came from Apple, where they made the post-purchase as as beautiful and streamlined as the pre-purchase, um, and they he was able to, to witness that, be a part of it, and see the impact to top-line revenue and the customer delight. He left Apple to say, I have to go create this for everyone else because not everyone's going to have the resources to do this on their own. And that's what he did. So he created Narvar. And now any brand who sort of thinks heartily about the customer journey basically uses Narvar. So you're talking about, a, you know, the Internet, you know, top 500. The majority are using Narvar right now or considering using Narvar. Wow. That's that's working out quite well. And what would be an example of something that Narvar um, can tr- like, you know, part of their experience that they, a company could start uh, including in kind of the post-purchase experience now that they didn't weren't doing before. Well, so now, so as a customer, now rather than getting this email where you take this crappy link and go to another website that's not particularly pretty to try to figure out when the hell your package is coming, instead of now, if you, let's say, buy from Nordstrom's, if you click on Track My Package, see this beautifully designed page, and by the way, totally branded Nordstrom's, you know, so as far as the consumer's concerned, it's all Nordstrom's, and tells you exactly when it's coming, and then also has other messages to the consumer to kind of bring them back to the front door, and then the returns are sort of the Zappos-like returns, so, you know, companies used to still put in, truly still do put in a sheet of paper where you're writing reason code 17 for your return and you're still waiting in line at the store. Those are all gone. So as a consumer, like I'm a working mom with three kids. We buy a ton online. I will not buy anything online from anyone who doesn't have 
easy returns. Hmm. It's why Amazon owns the majority of my wallet for so long. And so now, you know, that Narvar enables those kind of returns for all these other companies, I get to add more companies to my list of where I'll buy. I'm too busy for returns not to be as seamless. So, and I talk about me, but it's really the, the, you know, higher, you know, the, the meaning a, a bunch of me's, right? I represent a big group of people who are not willing to sort of have friction on the returns. And if there is friction, you just won't buy from that store. Interesting. And, and I want to hear about your background, but I got a couple, since you brought it up, let's just uh, finish off uh, talking about this investment. Cause so when did you make that investment and, and what round um, did you come in? Yeah. On? So I led, yeah, so, so typically we come in at the seed stage round, and for us, that's, this is everything I'm about to say is typical. There, you know, we break rules on both sides, but typically our entrepreneurs are raising between two and three million dollars, and we will lead the round and bring in other partners as we, you know, who can add the most value. Um, and by leading, we're typically writing a check a little bit north of a million. You know, once again, I would say eight hundred k to one point three, one point four. Um, and, and then we're very actively involved with our companies and because we're all, um, prior serial entrepreneurs, we feel like we really, really understand what our founders are going through, what the journey is like, especially in this phase of seed, which is, you know, a lot more art than science. And so we work really, really closely with them, getting them to that next milestone, which is usually a great series A. Sometimes there's an acquisition, you know who knows what else can happen but um but for the most part that's when we're very involved and then once the series a happens if we were on the board we get off the board if we were never on the board it's even easier and then we're still involved with our founders at this point we become almost like a trusted advisor um and we have like sort of the more day-to-day operational heavy lifting done by that next investor and that's the reason it's able to scale our model so for narvar I was able to lead the speed, and I did so after being at Christoph only about a month and a half, maybe two months. But the interesting thing is everyone who in D.C., when I'd go around and ask for wisdom, would say, don't do a deal for a long time. It's <laughs> right. weird. But don't do it. Don't do it. Wait. Be patient. Be patient. So that was in my head, and that was my plan. And But once I met Ahmet, and his vision for Narvar and how he saw the whole world evolving. Um, and, and when I say evolving, it was, you know, there was this experience, this customer experience that he was going to provide that retailers, I felt, would have to provide to stay competitive in this, this I, I call it sort of the post-Amazon era or the Amazon era. And they, this is where Amazon, I feel like, really, really delivers. And so... And so I so bought into his vision of this would be the post-purchase is doesn't exist. Most people have never even heard that name. And it would probably become the primary lever that would have the greatest impact going forward on online revenue, right? Of where people chose to shop or not shop. And um, that has turned out to be true. So anyway, it was a little bit too compelling for me. I kind of saw his vision. Um, too clearly, and so I, I, I plunged. I took the plunge, um, not I would say within two months after being <laughs> here. Crazy. And I knew the other advice, but when you have that much <laughs> conviction, it you just kind of it's hard to turn it off. And and how far along? Then we'll just keep diving in because this is interesting. Then we'll go back. But um, how far along was Amit when sure. you, you met him? And 
you know, did he have customers? Did yeah. he have a product? Like, what was it going through your mind and his mind? It's a, it's a great question. It's a, actually a great question because I can use it as an example to kind of talk about sort of how we look yeah. at things at this stage. So he did have a product. Um, and it was really, really thin, meaning easy to implement, which was key because that's how we got a number of these really impressive brands to be working with him. So he, he had customers, um, and they were paying him and the customers he had were those who were really forward thinking in the consumer journey, right? So he had the Warby Parkers of the world, if you will. Um, but there were a couple issues. One is that they weren't paying, all of his customers weren't paying him much because he had to keep the friction low to get those logos, right? And once you get those logos, then oftentimes you can get the other people who follow the, the Warbies of the world, right? And so and so it was a little bit challenging um, when figuring out to make this investment or not on a few fronts. One is, could he get a lot more than he had? Would you only be, would his market be limited to the only the people who are crazy forward thinking? I obviously came out believing no, that fast forward a year, two, three, this would become table stakes, that there wouldn't be a retailer who couldn't afford to uh, provide this experience. Because when did you invest? So sorry, that's sorry. I got over. When did you invest in him? Sorry to interrupt, it's just for context. When did, oh, that's okay. Yeah. It's about three and a half years ago. Okay. All right. Gotcha. All right. All right. That's and it. so, so there was that. And then the problem was if you said, well, okay, great. Like, do I think, do we think that they can get deals with these retailers for probably a million dollars a year? Well, when they're currently paying $20,000, it's really challenging, right? To extrapolate and say, well, sure, no problem. And, and so, but that's something we had to do to sort of believe that this could be a really big, valuable company. Um, so you have to kind of understand and having, once again, been an entrepreneur, you know what you give away up front to get your party started. So you have to decide, is that what you give away to get your party started? And then your party's really great. You can start charging a lot and adding a ton of value. Or you're going to be limited and like you're really not going to be able to demand a ton of, you know, uh, money from these companies. So obviously, I got to a place where I believe that the price could go up significantly and that the product, long-term product roadmap would actually enable them to extract even more value from the company. So if they add more value, they would get more value. So one of my favorite things in a company is to have a company that has a short-term product roadmap, meaning they have a solution today that solves a tremendous need but that they also have a long-term product roadmap. They can truly see how it evolves into something that's a lot more, um, that really creates a tremendous platform and, and competitive barrier and big, valuable company. And so a lot of times I meet with companies who have the first, right? They have this, this sort of, I would say, neato product, right? Because like, that's awesome and cool and people want it, but you can't really see where it goes beyond. Not that it could never go beyond, but it's hard to, to see it, and sometimes even the founder themselves don't know. And then other times you get pitched from people who have this big, hairy, audacious goal of the future, but you don't know how they're going to get the party started, right? Where do you begin? What do you have that you're going to do in six months, right? That matters. And so finding someone who has both is something that is very attractive to me as an investor. And and how did that investment work with Freestyle? Because you just joined two months ago, and then you come to everyone like, "Hey, I think we should. I, I want to invest in this company." And they're like, "Jenny, you've only been here for two months." And uh, you know, <laughs> how, how 
did you i mean typically how does it go how does it work in freestyle but then of course this might have been i would imagine even tougher um but yeah is it the kind of uni unanimous decisions um does everyone have to agree to invest or how does that kind of work yeah, so it's a great question, and every time it's different. At Freestyle, there are three of us. And so it's, you know, we don't quote-unquote vote. Um, we've never actually said we have to be unanimous or not. Um, we have a conversation. And as a group, we decided this is something we want to move forward with. Um, and so for me, you know, I did a ton of work. It's an area, you know, the, the sort of retail enablement or retail tech is an area I know really well. And so, and I'd done a lot of work and I had pretty strong conviction of why this could be a valuable company. And it would happen to be one that most VCs have said no to. So, um, that, that was That's also, yeah, yeah, that was also an interesting dynamic. So it's sort of this, you know, does that make you, does that make it more attractive, less attractive? Every VC has a different sort of philosophy on that. For me, I like that I had the time to dig in and really do my work, get to know the founder, spend time together, do all my diligence and have that conviction where sometimes the quote unquote hot deals just go zooming by, they pick up cash really fast and then they're off and almost didn't have to go through the rigor and the discipline to have all those sort of important questions answered. So anyway, so at Freestyle, I basically, you know, I socialized it. I got to this place. I had tremendous conviction. One of my partners, and my partners, by the way, they brought me in, and they really, really wanted to hear my voice and have me be an, uh, an equal active uh, player. And so they weren't dismissive at all. They heard me loud and clear. They were very helpful. And one of my partners was like, I see it. I love it. I want to do it. And the other one said, listen, I don't see it. I don't see how this gets to be a massive company, but you have conviction. You you know, you've done a ton of work. It's like all your thinking makes sense. And then the other partner, he's like, and he loves it, so I'm in. Right. So you ask how do we make decisions? Sometimes when a partner has so much conviction and the other partner sees it, I'm sure if the third partner, you know, you know, sort of fell on their sword of how god awful the investment was, we would all listen. But we sort of don't do it that way. We more just debate. Um, we try to, you know, ask each other the tough questions and really kind of get at the core, is this an investment that we want to make? Because there's always risk. You're never going to make an investment without risk. And so it's the, 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 the spirit is more about understanding what are the risks that you're taking? What are those calculated risks you're taking? And why are you comfortable taking them? And so those are the conversations we have versus let's all raise our hands and vote. That's interesting. I love your conviction, especially when a lot of people say no, and here you're just starting out, and uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's impressive. It's funny. It's, that's, <laughs> turned, that's turned out to be one of, I mean, I know it sounds weird, but two of my, on paper, best-looking investments, yeah. right? And paper can be different than uh, than reality as, you know, time uh, <laughs> unfolds. But um, two of them were ones that, uh, uh, you know, ton of VCs that said no to. Wow. Uh, like, like tremendous amount had trouble getting their seed financing and both of those i led the other companies called better up and they do um this is actually i mean i, I talk about number being my favorite it's not my favorite it just was my first but better up uh, is equally my favorite as are all of my companies um <laughs> but um I, I joke it's like having kids no That's one's right. favorite but That's um right. so um so better up enables um um uh 
big corporations to give the, their manager level um, an individual coach, a one-on-one coaching session. And so there's executive coaching that happens at like $1,000 an hour, right? And so the C-level uh, gets coached and everyone kind of knows how powerful it is. Then you have, um, so that's, that's one piece of information. Then another piece of information is $67 billion is spent in the United States by corporations on learning and development, right? So that's when you send your new managers off to leadership training at the Chicago Hyatt and whatnot. And most of the time, those employees, one, don't want to go, don't like it, they're expensive, and it doesn't stay with you. You attend for three days, you're done, you move on. And so what these guys do is they have a very scalable, super effective way to provide coaching via, you know, through the mobile device for the, you know, this level of employees. And they get so much more out of it um, than what they would otherwise be doing with that learning and development fund. And so big companies like, you know, I could like whether it could be Facebook, LinkedIn, and then non-Silicon Valley companies, like other big banks and whatnot, um, law firms, et cetera. Big, big companies are providing this to their employees. And it's a perk because people really value professional development, um, but they value it a lot more when it's at their discretion on their timeline and personalized. And so that's what BetterUp is doing. And so I, I, um, both of those companies are one companies that had a lot of trouble securing their seed, but then had a t- and I let them both, and both of them had tremendous interest and in, in competitive term sheets for both their Series A and their Series B. So sometimes people have trouble seeing it in the beginning, but then once you're off to the races, it's really obvious. Um, and then both are one of my favorite models, which is B to B to C, meaning the company is selling to businesses. But the businesses are then providing, you know, the the real solution is actually getting used by the end consumer. So in Narvar, it's the shopper that is so delighted and so happy that makes them want to buy more from that business that Narvar sells to. With BetterUp, the employees are so engaged and so appreciative of this personal development, which then helps the big corporations retain their employees and make their employees better leaders and better contributors. Interesting. And, and why, you know, and you know, there's no right answer to this, but why do you think you saw something and all the other VCs didn't just based on your experience? Um, you know, you've had some great, uh, um, online experience, which we can get into, but, uh, yeah. What do you, what do you, do you think there's anything in particular? Um, you see it? Well, I think that it's true for all of us to, to some extent. I mean, I would imagine that every VC has the story of the thing that they saw that others didn't see, right? So it's a little bit, it's kind of like dating, right? It's like you, you there's something to the chemistry. There's something to seeing things that other people don't see, valuing things that other people don't value. So it's not that I think, oh, I'm so special. I see things that no one else sees. I think we all see things that others don't see. And, um, you know, sort of taking that risk is where the opportunities lie. Right. And so the, the obvious ones rarely have the, the, as big of return, whether it's because you end up kind of overpaying evaluation or because it's so obvious you find six other companies doing it at the same time, which ends up being a macro trend that sort of hurts the whole, you know, chances of being successful, period. Um, and so I think that's a bit, I mean, that is a bit of the, the name of the game in, in venture. 
right? So yep. being willing to take a risk and, and being right, seeing the things that are not obvious. You know, one of my favorite examples of an area that is, I would say, super obvious, and there will be a winner, but I couldn't invest because it's seed. I couldn't be the one to pick the winner, is um, on-demand sort of delivery of of pharmacy, right? Like when you're sick, the last thing you want to do is go to CVS and wait in line and try to get your medicine, right? All you want to do is press the button and have it brought to you. And so it's a massive industry, so it seems like crazy obvious. It was so obvious, though, after I met with about my fifth company doing it at the same time. And by the way, they all received financing. I realized, okay, this in and of itself is going to make it so much harder to be uh, successful because competition creates more noise. It makes, you know, acquisition harder. And so it ends up sort of just sort of it, it just factually makes it harder for any one company to be successful. So, yes, competition can be good. It can be healthy. But, you know, starting out of the gate, six companies at the same time that I got VC funding, not not a recipe for success. Makes sense. Okay. And uh, we're, we're running out of time here. I, I got uh, I could talk to you for uh, another hour, so I'll be careful in my questions. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's see. Uh, well, I, I, before, maybe before too far, can you maybe just give a, a little a brief, brief overview? I know it's a lot longer than brief of your entrepreneurial background, just so people get a sense for you know, where you, where you came from before getting to venture capital? Sure. So I was actually at Stanford Business School um, when I started working on the business plan for an aggregated gift registry, um, which is now WeddingChannel.com. And it was at a time when Amazon was just selling books and the internet was here, but people were really careful what they would buy online. And so the more you didn't need to touch and feel it, but you could have conviction and what, you know, feel comfortable in what you were buying, the better. So a woman that I started working with, we felt that that um, wedding gifts were the perfect application for that. Because let's just say you're going, you know, you're getting married, you and your fiance have picked up all the things you want, you did the touching, the feeling, the score visit, et cetera. Well, now as a gift buyer, all I want to do is get you what you want at the price point that I want. I don't need to go see it. So it was the perfect, we felt, great internet application, um, uh, you know, great thing to apply to that market. And so what we did is we ended up aggregating the gift registries of all the major players. So, you know, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Great and Barrel, Neiman Marcus, Williamson, you know, you name it, and brought it all together so that no one ever had to say like, oh, Bob, where are you registered? It's just like, you go to one place, you see everything they want, and you buy them the gift that they want. Um, and so we, we actually had a, uh, funding from Kleiner Perkins, um, uh, to, to start the company, um, as we were finishing our first year. So we dropped out of business school and, uh, and we did it. And it was a really, really wild time. It was, you know, total dot com era. Um, companies were rising fast and falling fast. And so I am proud that the company still exists. And, uh, and you know, it still adds value uh, today. And then the second company I did, I wish I hadn't done weddings twice because I'm not that passionate about weddings. But it <laughs> then impacted the deal, my <laughs> deal flow. Yeah, it's not a love of weddings as much as the deal flow that yeah. was coming my way. And I happened to fall in love with this idea. But um, the second company was called Bella Pictures. And we were the first national event photography company. Event was mostly weddings. And it was, um, it's actually interesting because the model was a little bit before its time in that, you know, it's, it's almost like Uber-like in that 
you had all these incredible photographers out there who would never want to be a quote-unquote wedding photographer. They were sort of above that. They could have been Pulitzer Prize winning and super National Geographic, right? So they maybe used to be a wedding photographer and they've moved on or they just never would have. Now, this group of photographers, they still needed to pay the rent. And the AP would call and tell you they needed you tomorrow, but that wasn't the kind of security people needed. So what we did was we created this this sort of machine of a best of breed where we would attract, you know, we had great online marketing. We would track the brides and grooms to our site and then have them meet with a person in the in the field who absolutely loved weddings, could talk weddings, you know, forever. They'd meet with a couple, they'd make them feel really good about all our processes and how we work. We're, you know, great consumer experience. And then we would match that couple with an awesome photographer. Photographer would show out, show up, shoot the wedding, and then deliver the digital negatives to our digital operations center in corrupt Nevada, where we'd process them really quickly, give them their, we call them digital negatives at the time, and do their album. So you kind of had everyone doing what they were really good at, which provided an incredible um, service to our bars and grooms. They got much higher-end photography at a much better cost. And so that was incredible. It was an absolute rocket ship. We went from zero to 20 million in consumer sales that, you know, consumer services that's awesome in under three years. Under, you know, so under three years, crazy growth. And then 2008 was just brutal. It just, Mm -hmm. our industry collapsed in half. We didn't know it. And um, it was a tough time. So it's not like we came crashing down. But our growth definitely uh, got impacted. We more like flatlined or like barely grew, which in you know the land of the startup is kind of like that. Um, and so we ended up selling it to a company called CPI. Um, but without that timing, I think that uh, that company would have continued to just um, really, really, really do well. And that's a, a podcast just talking about your background. So I, I won't dive in, but of course I have lots of questions about that. But uh um, let's see it. So, you know, a couple more questions, you know, how, when, you know, you, so you have two startups and I'm sure it wasn't all up in roses every day. And, you know, I'm always curious, like, and yeah. even now, like, how do you deal, how do you deal personally with like distress? Um, do you talk to people? Do you go for a run? What, how do you kind of, uh, handle it? Yes. And yeah. So first of all, being a VC is not, even remotely as stressful as being the founder. It's just, it's night and day. And so whenever a VC talks about how stressful or hard it is, and they say to them, I assume you've never been a founder because <laughs> it just pales in comparison. And so, you know, today what I do is I really try to be um, sort of a trusted advisor and friend and sometimes therapist to my founders. It's hard. It's really, really hard. I think the media glamorizes, you know, being a founder and very little discuss of how stressful it is. And literally people say it's like a roller coaster. I say it's more like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And I don't know if you know Disney World, but like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, if you're on, it's like one day you're in an area and it's just lovely and sunny and the birds are chirping. And then literally you're like, oh my God, we're going to crash. We're going to die. And then <laughs> the doors open up and then you're back to the sunny and rainbows and whatnot. And that's kind of what it's like. And so I think, um, the, the the sort of the mantra that I've come up with is just that worrying is very healthy if it causes you to recognize something 
that is a concern that's going to be a problem and then you can do things to mitigate that right you can do things to help that so if you're concerned that just say that you don't have enough sales people and you're not going to make the revenue numbers that's a good concern to have it's probably based in reality go get yourself some sales people and ramp them up really fast right so if if, if, if the worry creates then an action plan that gets you to be in a more successful situation that's great Worry just for worry's sake, where you're just in your own head telling yourself a story like, we're never going to make it, we're never going to make it. It just, it, it doesn't help. It's not constructive. And so a book that I recommend everyone read is called Positive Intelligence. And it basically, um, I think, I mean, anyone, it, it, I don't care if you're a founder or not a founder, it's a book. I've read it a couple of times. It's a little bit life-changing. But it's just this idea of you control your brain, right? Reality is reality. And the more you can just see reality without a narrative on it, the better off you're going to be at making the right choices and doing the right things. And so that's kind of how I handle stress. So it doesn't mean that I'll never be stressed. Of course I'll be stressed. But understanding that it is what it is and layering on the story about this will never work, this will never work, what if this happens, what if that happens, doesn't really do anything good. So I don't let my brain go there. So yes, I do do yoga. Yes, I do run. Yes, I do talk to people. But most of all, and I also, you know, depending on timing, I meditate, um, uh, which is also super helpful and sort of part of that, you know, what's recommended in in positive intelligence. But um, anyway, so that's sort of where I come out of like trying to control and work on what I can be uh, impactful on and just letting go of the things that I can't be. And that's another, yeah, I love that topic. That's another whole podcast. I would like to. There's so many questions there. There's so many things we talk about, but we don't have any time. So last question, what do you like to do in your free time? So my free time is not as free because I have three young kids and a husband and I adore (laughs) all of them. And so I love to be with my family. Um, You know, of course I have hobbies, you know, I mentioned running and yoga. I love to travel. I love scuba diving. That doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to. Um, so I have plenty of kind of hobbies, but I would say, you know, um, not when I'm not working, being with my family, whether that's, you know, can be combining the two, like I could be snowboarding with my family or scuba diving with my family, even just playing cards with my family is really my happy place. Nice. Yeah. You sound like me and actually I've been asking that question quite a bit and you sound like, uh, a lot of people on this podcast doing interesting things. (laughs) So a lot of them are like spending time with family. So that's cool. Very great. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's, about that's it. real. I mean, you know, it's, 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 you're never going to get this time back. So yeah. I am, um, I love what I, I love working. I absolutely love, love, love my job. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to blink and realize that I missed, you know, a sort of a fleeting period of, of my life yep. that I'll never get back. And so, yeah, it's true. It goes fast. That's for sure. Um, well, I appreciate you having me. It's oh, yeah. been an absolute pleasure. Definitely. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Jenny, and hearing about your past and hearing about what you're doing now. And, and you kind of you kind of flipped it on me, so I like that because usually we kind of go over the background a little bit, so I'm glad we just dove right in. So it's good to spice it up. <laughs> so that, was, that was awesome. So uh, <laughs> um, Awesome. I'm glad. And, uh, yeah. And, so, yeah, definitely thank you for your time, and thank you, for every, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jenny, for coming on. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me. All right, bye.